Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the net zero carbon water cycle with Dr. Stephen Kenway, who is the who is a professor at the Australian Centre for Water and Environmental Biotechnology, the Faculty of Eng Engineering, Architecture and Information Technology. Hi, how are you? Welcome uh, to the good show. Good, thank you, Gabriella. Um, so do you want to, you know, introduce yourself a little bit more? Uh Fantastic. Yeah, I, I work at the university in, in Queensland, um, but I guess the, the aspect we're talking about is a very strong project we have with the Victorian water sector, mostly in Melbourne and the state government to understand what is a net zero carbon water cycle and how do we use water to have good outcomes, either reducing greenhouse gas emissions or improving water efficiency or saving money into the future. Great. I can't wait to hear more about that. But um, first, we'll uh, get to know you a little bit better um, with the section we like to call, Have You Met Stephen? Um, so our first question is, what is your favorite book? Uh, that's a great question. A lot of books I, I really like, but I read a great one maybe seven years ago called Island of the Lost by Joan Druitt, which is set on an island called Auckland Island, which is about a thousand miles south of the South Island of New Zealand. So what's it about? Um, it's about two shipwrecks uh, which occur in the same year, I think in the late 1800s. Um, one one shipwreck which leads to really, really difficult circumstances. Well, they're both really difficult circumstances, but um, the, the role of leadership and how the different leaders of the two um, shipwrecks effect effectively um, manage people, manage the circumstances and, and, what, and how they survive. So some people survive from both parties. One complete party survived and the other only a fraction did. So yeah, just how they managed to do it. Yeah. Sounds like maybe a slightly more hopeful version of, um, then, oh, what's that book with the kids who are lost on the other way? Uh, Hunter games. Oh, no. Hunter games. No, no, no. That's not what the, oh, oh, just, Lord of the flies. Lord of the flies. It sounds like that, but better. Yeah. Yeah. I read that one when I was eight or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a movie that you've uh, watched recently that you've enjoyed? Uh, yeah, I saw um, Emily about Emily Bronte and um, the author of Wuthering Heights uh, recently, and I really enjoyed that. And also Avatar 2, The Way of Water, which I loved as well. Um, so are you listening to any podcasts at the moment? Uh, yes, I'm listening to A History of England. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds pretty self-explanatory, but can you explain it a little bit more? Uh, sure, this particular podcast uh, starts around the year 900, um, which is sort of partway through the Viking invasion and um, and covers the period where England effectively became England, how there was a number of kingdoms and how they united and uh, the role of the various um, groups in, in creating that. But uh, I probably got interested because I've also been watching on Netflix 
the last kingdom, which is how the Vikings had actually taken over three of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and only Wessex remained. And even that was taken over in the king in exile, hiding in a swamp for three months and how, how he came back and basically led to England being created. Wow, that sounds great. Have you watched Vikings? I have indeed. Several different versions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they all, um, all of that history is very interesting, I think. Hmm. Um, so do you have a role model? Uh, I do. Uh, probably several. I think uh, I think different people I admire for different reasons. But one person in particular um, was a chief executive of a consulting firm I worked at for 10 years uh, who'd come from academia and joined industry and was just really good at relating to people and making things happen and working across industry and government and academia. Yeah. It's really nice when you're, um, it's really nice to know that I guess you can find a role model in any area um, and that it's very easy to, not easy, but it's like nice that you can see someone in real life and have a role model who is really there. Sometimes we have people who are role models who are very far away yeah. and we don't really know them. No, no. Yeah. Um, and is there a course that has inspired you? Uh, a course? Yes. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I guess my undergraduate degree uh, was a was quite inspiring. Uh, we did subjects across thirteen different parts of the university. I did a bachelor of natural resources management, so we did studies in physics and chemistry and maths and psychology and remote sensing and entomology and economics. Um, we're always traipsing all over the university. I think, I think that multidisciplinarity and seeing things from different perspectives and how either the engineering or the social sciences sides of campus approach problem solving. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. I think having that diversity of training um, has, has led to really um, a good opportunity in helping address really complex problems that we have like in cities where I don't think engineering on its own will solve it. I don't think social science on its own will solve it. I think there's a real need for people to come together and collaborate across very different disciplines to solve some of the current challenges we have, like climate change or how do how we design better cities into the future. That's so interesting. I've never heard of a course that combines so many different areas into one. Um, yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was. I really enjoyed it. And definitely, yeah, as you said, um, we need different perspectives and different ways of fixing these problems, which I guess were caused by many things, and we need lots of um, perspectives to fix them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, so why do you think household management, or what is household management? Oh, uh, well, I guess um, we're, we're thinking about water and energy of cities, and I guess households often manage by the people in them, whether it's a parents or a share house or a group of friends uh, and, or, or families. Um, and I, there's a concept we work with in our work called urban metabolism, which a lot of people say is a very frustrating word because it means so many different things. But I do like to talk about it because urban metabolism, a concept which helps us understand how a city's exchange matter, material and energy with its surrounding environment. And effectively, because more and more people are living in cities, it's through cities and understanding how they draw on water or energy or materials to create livability and for people to have have good lives, um, how that impacts the environment. Like 
like leading to climate change or water shortage or environmental impact. Um, and so households, if we think of that metaphor, a lot of people then say, well, our cities have an artery system, like the water network and all its branching um, pipes can be like the art the heart and the, the, the arteries of a city. And then the wastewater network and the treatment plant are like the veins and the kidneys. And if we use that metaphor, households are like the building block. They're like the cell of this organism that is a city. Um, and so if, if those households are efficient in how they're designed and depending on how they perform and the water and energy they draw, that impacts the whole organism. And so we can either solve problems at the household scale or the city scale or both and increasing, that's what we call working across different scales from the scale of the household to the whole city. And increasingly, we have to think about both scales. Um, but a lot of our engineering and big problem solving happens at the city scale and we don't often think about what's happening at the household scale until there's some kind of crisis like a drought or a energy blackout or something similar yeah okay and i'll have lots of questions about i guess both sections um the city scale and the home scale but i guess the most important question is what is the net zero carbon water cycle Ah, that's a great question. And I think I've probably found about 20 different definitions of what is net zero or what is net zero water. Um, so net zero is a concept came out of the Paris Accord uh, and it basically means that as a, as Earth, uh, because the system we're on is this planet Earth, has balance with its carbon dioxide, that it's not increasing and not going down. And we need that to stabilise so we don't keep Earth warming. Um, and it's been growing and growing faster and faster for the last 200 years, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So net zero means we've got that balance. Um, and then different countries or different cities or different companies have all said, yeah, we want to be part of net zero. We'll be a net zero organization or a net zero carbon city. Um, so the water sector has started down that pathway. Um, and they talk a lot about scope one, scope two, and scope three carbon or scope three greenhouse gas emissions. And most say we'll be responsible for our own emissions, that the energy we use directly or the carbon and the electricity that we use, that's scope one and scope two. Um, but what's different about a net zero carbon water cycle, we say we want it to be net zero carbon through the whole cycle, right from not just the utility, pumping water, treating water and wastewater, but right into households and how water is used within households and ultimately industry as well. So is scope three, I guess, how the water is used and um, by the people using it uh, and yeah, making a, that net zero? A good example would be the coal sector. So for the coal sector, they need a certain amount of uh, energy to extract the coal or market the coal. That would be scope, or, or, or transport the coal, that's scope one and two. But the greenhouse gases emissions that are cr created when it's burnt uh, in the country or where it's gone to, that would be scope three. It's not in their direct control. And same for a vehicle manufacturer uh, that it takes a certain amount of energy to make a car. But but scope three is sort of outside their direct control, but it's within their influence because the owner of the car then might use either petrol or natural gas or electricity to drive the car. And so that's a, a, an emission they're not directly, but they have an influence on. And so water utilities are increasingly becoming interested in scope three emissions internationally. Um, and by far the biggest of those happens within households when water is heated in all many, many different ways. Um, 
uh, and that's and utilities do water utilities and government does have an influence on that because they influence water efficiency and also how water is supplied okay so how i guess do you go about making that uh net zero <laughs> that, that's a really good question I, and it's got to be progressive because all of the regulatory framework all of the laws and incentives uh, around greenhouse gas emissions in australia to to this point have been on scope one and two um mm -hmm. you know the things that are in the direct control of different organizations so what we are encouraging is moving into this broader zone of collective responsibility and the, in, in, intriguingly in victoria the water sector has a mandated leadership role uh, in greenhouse gas by the state government and that happens because the water sector actually has by far the biggest greenhouse gas impact of any uh, state agency in in victoria so in cities the largest single user of electricity is the water sector cities usually use around one percent of the electricity of a city uh, and then about 10 times more than that is just for heating water in households um, so i guess we're starting this by firstly understanding how much energy, how much greenhouse gas emissions uh, are influenced, uh, and then also how, how can we how can we reduce it in a way that is acceptable to households, improves affordability for households and utilities, and ultimately can be shaped into regulation, whether that's the state regulation or the federal government regulation. So, I guess, what kind of regulations are you looking for? Yeah. Like what uh, well, changes would you want to make? Yeah, that, that's the million dollar question at the moment. There, there's a range. Um, where we began was looking at the Victorian Energy Efficiency Certificates and you can already get uh, credit, carbon credits, et cetera, for uh, installing different levels of efficiency, but they cut out at a certain ceiling. Um, so down to around six and a half or seven litres per minute. And I think they stop there because they just feel below that can't be achieved, that we people just won't work at less than seven litres per minute of water flow, roughly, um, or they won't enjoy the experience. But there's new technology now which does make that very achievable, and I think what motivates people is also understanding to know, well, how does this impact my water bill, my wastewater bill, my electricity bill, my natural gas bill, um, and also what's the environmental consequence of that relative to, to other options that we have. So I think... Um, it's, it's about improving understanding. Well, sorry, that was the Victorian Energy Efficiency Certificates, but there's a whole range. There's right through to the memorandum of understandings or the statements of obligation that are given to water utilities to say, well, look, this is the service that you provide uh, and your role is to help households um, and industry you know, have access to good, clean water in, a, in an affordable and equitable way. Um, but what that tends to do is drive most of the solution to the utility side rather than to the household side. And where it gets difficult is finding, well, how do we compare options that are just inside the utility, like putting a new desalination plant in or recycling wastewater um, through to working with households, whether they be uh, disadvantaged households or low-income households, right through to wealthy households um, in very different you know, social, social situations and settings. How do we do that in an equitable way, um, kind of what they call going beyond the meter. Um, and how do we compare those options? Because that's never really happened historically. So the question about that uh, rating system you're talking about. So does that like um, the rating for like how much water does something use or how much electricity does something use? Yeah, and so yeah. part of what you're suggesting is that we improve that system 
and we improve that technology so that people can purchase these, you know, dishwashers and things that are yep. that use less water. Well, interesting. Interestingly, uh, we have a water efficiency labeling system called Wells, uh, where you can get a three star, four star, five star, and periodically all the star ratings decrease so as technology improves. Um, so a lot of the washing machines in the past would use three times more water than they do now. And during the millennium drought, there was a lot of federal government, state government rebate to shift from top loading washing machines to front loading because they're more water efficient. A lot of those um, appliances also have an energy labeling system, but talking with the manufacturers, they're sort of hitting thresholds now. They can either improve the water efficiency by putting more energy in, so they're more agitation and spinning, or they can uh, improve the energy rating by using more water uh, for rinsing and flushing. Uh, that um, And so we're, some of the technologies are hitting, hitting uh, limits. Um, sometimes innovation can break through both, both of those things simultaneously, but a lot of that depends also on households and household behavior and what sort of technology and options households are willing to accept. Okay, so I guess uh, what are some other options that households can take, can do? Uh, if, if their aim is about water savings, energy savings and cost savings, typically the first place to look is the shower. Um, and I think the Chaser did a great program on you know, how people understand the connection between water and energy and greenhouse gas emissions and their bill in the shower, and it's it's not simple. I think I think people are often motivated in a drought to save water. They can imagine a, the dam is running out, so I have a shorter shower. I'll save I'll save water, but it's a much much harder concept to say. Well, the globe is getting warmer, and maybe it's a quarter of a degree warmer this year than it was last year. Um, so I should have a shorter shower. You know, that's a much harder link to make. But in essence, um, when water comes into the house, it takes energy to warm it up. When I have a shower, say 40 degrees, mm-hmm. and water is an incredible battery. It takes a lot of energy to heat water uh, and, and it stores a lot of energy in it. Um, so it's very thermodynamically um, dense, if that's the right term. And, um, uh, and so, um, and then depending on where the energy comes from, whether it's solar or coal or gas, there's a different amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not just where it's going from, it's when, because sometimes solar will be active during the day or the water might be stored overnight. So the timing uh, and the duration just of a shower impacts your greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not as simple to say, oh yeah, I had a shorter shower, so I use less greenhouse gas emissions or I... Um, in general, it will, but not always. Yeah. So I do have a question about that. So um, I have an electric water system in my house. Um, yeah. So the way I understand it works is that there is a water boiler where the water is heated up and then we have a shower and it's all filled with cold water. They have to reheat it. Yeah. Would it be more or less efficient to turn the water system off and only turn it on when I actually need to use it? Or to keep it on all the time? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and Does I guess this historically, um, well, having, whether you've got the energy right at the time. So in Italy, uh, that, many of them have a button. You've got to push the button and wait half an hour and the water heats up. Um, but why in Australia we heat, heat preheat it and have a lot more stored water um, is because we have coal-fired power. Um, and coal-fired power systems need to generate energy 24 hours a day they're slow to ramp down and slow to ramp up they can't just turn it on immediately like hydropower or, or other energy options 
And so they, they want to use what they call off-peak. So from midnight through till 6am and most of the electric hot water systems in Melbourne have that off-peak heating, they're kind of using electricity that otherwise would have been wasted um, or, or lost or spilt, what they call spilt from the grid. Because the amazing thing about an electric network, they have to balance every second or every minute at least um, the supply and the demand. So different energy infrastructure is always turning on and off to meet, to meet that demand. Uh, it's much harder to store it, and that's why we're increasing the battery and um, pumped hydro and you know, options like that in the in the energy network. Um, so, yeah, your electric hot water system. If well, one thing which is happening now with renewable energy is we're getting a lot more solar photovoltaics into the system, and Melbourne now has so many solar PV or solar electricity systems that it's also wasting energy during sunny days. That that grid electricity can't even get into the suburbs so there's an argument that we should be capturing that wasted solar electricity for the heating just like like you're saying uh and that you know as we get a new and renewable energy profile we need to think about well what does it mean to have off-peak heating and storage of water but that's a that's that's quite a complex thing to work through yeah Mm, because the other and the other well i mean the other thing is that presumably i have a shower in the morning and then the tank tank fills with cold water again so that yep. presumably isn't does it have to re it reheats then but that's not peak energy that's not well warm. if it's if it, if if you're if you don't have an offbeat tariff and if it fills in the morning that's right you'll be paying more per mm. kilowatt hour or more per liter of hot water than if you'd filled it if you'd filled it at two o'clock in the morning yeah okay so you should so that's one thing you can do to like reduce your energy bill is to get something is get a heated a water um, tank that I guess heats during it's the off peak. It's called a controlled tariff. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you have to sign up uh, and say you'll only heat the hot water system, and they'll put a particular meter on your hot water system. Yeah, yeah. But does that mean if you have a shower in the morning, you won't have any hot water for the rest of oh, the day? No, no. Uh, well, it depends on the quality of your your water storage. But if it's heated up, you know, between midnight and six a.m. in the morning, it'll still be very hot when you have a shower okay. in the morning. Yeah. Okay. I guess the other issue with my place, at least, is that. The water tank is quite small. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. And depends how many housemates jumped in before you, or how many mm-hmm. teenagers are in your family. Yeah. Um, well, there's two of us, and by the time I have my shower, the water is cold halfway through. So, oh. well, um, there, are te- there are technology options now. Um, there's a company in Australia um, won a European Green Technology Award for a thing called a recirculating shower, which is a sort of next generation high tech shower, and it has a button which can. It's like a internet disconnect button. You can turn the shower off on your high water using housemates or whoever is using the water most. So it's like uh, a remote for your shower. <laughs> Almost, yeah. And it turns the shower. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I don't think I would use that though. That seems <laughs> no, mean. It does seem mean, yeah. Um, so what are some other things that households can do to reduce their water uh, usage and their energy usage? That's a really good question. I think understanding it is is often a first step. You're like, how much are you using and how much does it compare? Just pulling out a bill and having a look at it and trying to understand it. How mm-hmm. does it compare to your street or how many litres per person? And if you're under about 120 litres per person per day, when you think about it, that's like um, one-tenth of a cubic metre of water. That's a lot of water, but, and that's efficient in Australia, 120 litres. Um and and how many kilowatt hours of electricity? So our household uses twelve 
kilowatt hours every day. So it's about three kilowatt hours per person. So just understanding how how your household compares and then thinking thinking about that. And then progressively understanding, well, where where in the household is it? Australians actually very good with water. Um, we're a very water literate society because we've had such variability uh, in our rainfall and we've gone through droughts and we always have to respond. In contrast, Australians are rubbish at understanding energy. Um, and it's because we've never really had major energy crises. You know, we've got a huge natural reserves of coal and gas and uranium and co- uh, solar and tidal and hydrogen now. We're going to be a renewable superpower. And that consequently, our energy use has grown at 3% every year for decades, whereas our water use, we've flatlined um, for, for, for a long time. Um, so our cities don't use more water, but they're getting more and more people. And it's only because we're getting more and more efficient. And we, we talk about water, we train in water, we understand that, um, but we've never achieved that what they call decoupling of the growth of our cities and our economy from energy. We've never achieved that like we have have with water. Um, so back to households, understanding firstly how, how your uh, house is performing, then looking at the shower in particular because it uses about a third typically of household water and about a third of household energy. Um, uh, and then you, you can do a simple bucket test as well. So if you get a 10 litre bucket and a iPhone or a watch or something, turn the shower on flat out, uh, fill a 10 litre bucket and see how many seconds or minutes it took and you can work out how many litres per minute. If your shower is above 7 litres per minute, as most will be, there are many technology options that can you can put in place to reduce that. Um, yeah, so I, I guess there there's also different monitoring devices that can go on different implements right through to um, data systems that display daily the breakdown of water and energy within the household. And that, so if you really like data and into technology, that's, that's another option. So you said that there are some things that we can do to like reduce um, the amount of water we're using in the shower. Uh, what are those? Well, I, well shorter showers is... Um, uh, yeah. Well, that's the easiest one. As much as people don't like it, but I think there's... Mm-hmm. The shower is... Uh, and many people think the shower is... Um, you know, one of the most special times of the day, uh, it's a time to reflect and get away and have, have solace and daydream, etc. And and that's totally understandable. Um, but I guess just understanding how much it's costing uh, in water and energy um, can help make it real as well as the greenhouse gas and greenhouse gas emissions. But um, there are also ways to have that same experience but use less. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a whole range of different uh, technologies that, that do that, um, whether it's actively um, recirculating the water and energy, which is kind of a frontier technology through to just using less litres per minute or less minutes. Um, um, yeah, there's some interesting ones too. So for example, um, in some households where they have, particularly if they have long pipes, um, if people shower at different times through the day, all the warm water in the pipes cools down. And so when the next person comes along, they turn on the shower and all that water that's cooled down has to be flushed and go down the sewer and it's wasted. So uh, all showering at a you know closer in time means that you're not heating up water, letting it cool down, wasting it, reheating water, letting it cool down, wasting it. Um, and in some households, that's a, adds about 30% of the water and energy wastage out of, out of the shower. Wow, in some ways that's quite an easy thing to do is just make sure that everyone has their showers at the same time. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty easy actually. Um, and just a 
slight tangent, my brother, uh, when we were kids, his room was always much hotter than mine because all of the hot water pipes ran around his yeah. room. Yeah. And so yeah. his room was always a sauna. Yeah. Um, so I guess at least if that happened, he was still using the hot water for something. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. And that sort of comes to the role of design. Uh, mm -hmm. And so understanding the waste heat coming out of those pipes. Uh, and there's also waste cool. We often don't talk about cool the way you talk about heat, but if water is coming in colder than the environment, then it's absorbing energy. Um, and in Australia, we've been blessed with a lot of energy and we've been blessed with a warm climate, like compared to Scandinavian or Northern European or Northern American or Canadian uh, or even Tasmanian households where they need to store energy and not, not waste it. Um, so we've never really thought about how we design our households to either reduce that waste heat, which we definitely don't want, you know, particularly in summer uh, in, in our households, or use the cools, uh for, you know, to, to create environments that are good at the household scale. And we've definitely not really thought about that at city scale, but there's huge opportunities. Is that something that you should, like, if you're building a house, is this something that you should be keeping in mind? Well, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's probably one of the last things people do think about. Um, where's the location of the hot water system relative to where you want to use water? Can you shorten the length of pipes? Because if you do that, then you get the water hot water quicker and you're going to waste far less. Um, uh, you know, that that'll be sort of step one. But then also thinking about well, where's the waste heat heat going in the example that you gave of, of your brother's room. Yeah, It's good in winter, but it wasn't so good in summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, what kind? So you said mentioned as well that you know building. I guess thinking about things like building the water heater next to the bathroom so that it travels less. What other things like that can people incorporate into their homes? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, from a water efficiency, the obvious one is is rainwater tank. Uh, from an energy efficiency, it's about renewable energy, whether that's a hot water system. Um, or a solar PV system, where there's a battery, and you know, so it, it it goes on and on a little bit, right? You know, from one spectrum where you're totally dependent on the big grid um, to provide all your water and all your energy, through to uh, the totally off-grid solution where you cut all the pipes and the po the poles and wires, and you're 100% providing it yourself. So the society we live in now today has this total uh, spectrum in between that, where you might provide meat. You know, ten percent of your own local water by harvesting rainwater and using it for the garden, or toilet flushing, or clothes washing. Um, some utilities now, like Aquarivo Southeast Water, they capture the, the rainwater, put it through the hot water system to use it for more end uses, and that has benefits as well because the hot water system is then also helping treat the water as a part of that process. Um, uh, and then, un yeah, understanding how how the water can be a battery in the energy system, whether it's, you know, part of the energy storage from your solar PV uh, system. So it's, um, th there are many, many options. Um, how many of them are being implemented? Some uh, at different rates and paces in different states for different reasons. Yeah. So um, another question I have is, what what do you think of Japanese toilets? <laughs> They're like a rocket launcher. Um, I think I like how many buttons on them. I've got a, a photos of a few. Um, yeah, one, you're never quite too sure what's going to happen depending on which button you hit. Because <laughs> one thing I did notice when I was over there just for holiday, there's this really cool feature where when you hit the um, flushing button, there's a little tap at the top of the toilet so you could wash your hands and then the water from that washing your yep. hands was actually used to flush the toilet. 
yeah. which I thought yeah. was a really great u- way to use water yeah. that was already going to be used. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I've seen similar ones where you wash your hand and it goes down into the cistern. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a misconception, particularly after the millennium drought. So if we go back to the tooth or the noughties, 2000 through to 2009, um, where every Australian city basically ran out of water, where we had one of the worst droughts we've ever had on record, arguably driven by climate change, started in Western Australia and then progressively spread to the whole East Coast. Uh, we've got a lot of water efficiency measures in place. And then probably from 2010 through to 2017, um, the water efficiency teams and every water utility in Australia dropped from like 80 people to one person. Um, the capability for managing water and understanding water efficiency and reducing it has been largely gone from the utilities. They're progressively building up in different parts for different reasons, but compared to a decade ago, it's a fraction fraction of, it, of what it was. Um, but um, yeah, I... Can't remember what I was about to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, if it helps, I did just ask about Japanese toilets. Yeah. Um, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. So to answer that question about efficiency, in some cases, um, we've developed technology. You just wash your hands and it goes down into the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think that we can? build more of those would, would it help i guess if we built more of those into our into our houses more of those kind of reuse uh, cycles undoubtedly and mm. I, i've got to give a couple of examples of why we don't um mm-hmm. 20 years ago i did a environmental impact study on a island just off brisbane uh, which is uh, stradbroke island absolutely delightful island if you ever come to southeast queensland you've got to go stradbroke island it's totally beautiful but at the time, they had to upgrade their wastewater treatment plant. Um, and we used a thing called the waste hierarchy to, to look at well, what the different options are. You could have more efficiency or you could um, use less or recycle, etc. Um, we found out that it was actually illegal under the planning code to put water efficient devices onto the island. And the reason it was illegal or the best that we could work out was that the local government had had to upgrade all the water supply infrastructure. Uh, and then the state government separately regulates how you can sell water, like the, the dollars per kiloliter that you can sell the water at. And they said, well, if all the households put water efficiency in, we're not going to be able to repay the debt on the upgrading the water infrastructure. So we ban water efficient devices. And so they use a lot more water, produce a lot of water wastewater, then they got to upgrade the wastewater network. And so there are multiple examples where by regulating or trying to control things separately, uh, like the price of water or um, fine options that are just have a short-term economic benefit rather than looking at the wider value proposition or value creation, that we drive some really silly things into, into our planning and infrastructure. I guess how do people, what can people do about that kind of situation? Like if you found out that your government banned um, water-efficient items uh, or appliances for this reason, what can you do? Highlight it, uh, communicate it, uh, let other people know, uh, talk to the media about it. I don't don't know, just make a noise about it. I'll probably Mm -hmm. get information on it, um, see what's happening in other areas. I don't know, talk to your local university about it or others, um, see if they'll get a bit more information to get. Often information is a really good starting point. Yeah. Is there any particular place that people can find that information? 
Ah, oh, wow. Um, well, the internet, compared to when I went to school, you had to go to the library. Today, uh, there's this phenomenal set of resources. Um, but talking to people, yeah, um, yeah. And they're, they're, interestingly, there's obviously huge amounts of information just on the internet, but behind that, there are databases and repositories of academic information and then let alone the patents and commercial databases. Um, uh, increasingly, that's becoming more publicly available. Um, and so universities often have to publish on their webpage um, what they call a um, like a proof copy uh, of, of academic literature as well as the final published copy. So free, freely available academic information is becoming much more available. Um, so for example, on the website for our group, there are the links of most of the journal articles that are what they call the, that proof copy, which is before the journal formats it and puts it into its final article. So all the technical information is consistent. It's just not formatted. So look, you can get access to really detailed scientific information now without having to go through the journals, which the journals are finding problematic because they've got contracts with the universities to subscribe to the journals. Um, yeah, so in many ways, but yeah, talking to someone's often a good start. Okay. Um, yeah, so have we, have I missed anything that you wanted to talk about? Um, I, th I think it's a little bit about, there's a question of who's responsible, uh, you know, for the water and energy efficiency performance of a city. And I, I really find that an intriguing topic. You know, is it the household's responsibility? Is it the utilities? Uh, is it the government's? Um, and amazingly, in our cities like Melbourne or Brisbane, we still don't know very much about how they perform uh, with regard to their water and energy efficiency. And we don't know it because we tend to manage our government either as uh, local government or state government or federal government. And in not many instances, it's the local government, the whole city. So if you go to a particular local government like Darabin or Reservoir or Frankston in Melbourne, um, they'll know all about that area. Um, but, and the state government will know all about the state of Victoria and the federal government knows all about Australia, but our cities where, which consume all these resources are composed of all of those entities and they don't share data all that well. There are efforts to do that, but we just don't um, align our water data well, whether it's across the centralized pipe flows of water and wastewater or the decentralised the flows of stormwater or rainwater that happen locally, um, let alone energy. And so it makes it really hard um, for our cities to even understand are they improving their efficiency with water and energy, which are pretty fundamental determinants of sustainable long-term cities, or, or are they deteriorating through time? Um, and a lot of our solutions of infrastructure are what we call problem shifting. They shift a problem from being a water problem to an energy problem. Like the clothes washer example I gave earlier, we'll shift an energy problem into a water problem without finding solutions at the core, which are addressing the water problem and the energy problem at the same time. Okay. So what we need is we need a government, I guess, that will cooperate <laughs> and, yeah. and figure and, this out and we'll actually do something about the issue rather than shifting. And, and I think share that data, the water mm -hmm. and energy data in a way that let a concept called interoperability that you can access water data and energy data in the same timestamp and know where it's come from in that sort of system that is the city and until we have that uh sort of 
wider picture of how water and energy are shaping and influencing our cities, often over quite long, slow time horizons, um, but also which can change dramatically during drought or new infrastructure, um, then it's going to be really hard to know if we're actually improving it or or um, it's deteriorating. Mm. Yeah, definitely something to think about. But yeah. Um, so moving on to uh, practice. Um, yeah. What is something that you do to manage uh, water in your own home? Uh, I've done quite a lot of things. I've um, um, in the in the household we've installed uh, more water efficient um, shower heads in the shower, and we we um, use very regular device called a shower amphirometer, which gives us our um, daily water use and energy use in the shower, and we chat about that periodically. Um, We've also done some reconstructing to move the hot water system closer uh, so that, hey, we get it faster and we let waste less and it costs less. Um, but we've also done a lot to understand and, and collect data so that we've got a good understanding of, of how much is being used, where and when and how. Yeah, and, and try to write about that as much as we can. Yes, well, you, said, <laughs> you said that uh, your house was actually a testing ground for... Well, uh, when I actually did my PhD 15 years ago, um, it, I had to get a lot of information on um, the water consumption pattern and the related energy so we could model it uh, as a general model and then apply that to other households. And that's been used reasonably widely. So I had to interview my two daughters and my wife about, you know, and, and document my own behavior and what temperature we showered at or bathed at or. Um, yeah, different cycles we use for different appliances. Um, so we could really unpack how much is going where because I think we can all see the water and we understand the water, but what we don't realize is that vastly different amounts of energy are attached to different drops of water uh, or different uses of water in the household. And, um, and that work we did 15 years ago really helped to illustrate how much is used in different areas. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, if people want to read that, can they find it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Lo lots of, so the, our website, um, which is um, Stephen Kenway, if you just Google Stephen Kenway at ACWEB, A-C-W-E-B, or the Net Zero program or Water and Energy, and then follow those links through on Google, ultimately you'll find that. Yeah, I will also um, try and find those links and pop them in the show notes for everyone to find. Fantastic. Um, so are there things, some things that renters can do as well? Well, rent, the renting situation, I think renters are more empowered in, even in Victoria now than they were three, four years ago where historically they had to get landlord approval to put in a um, water-efficient device like a shower head. I think a lot of that has relaxed. Um, but, and I, you know, putting in an amphirometer, the really nice thing about amphirometers is that um, they're powered by micro turbine in the actual the, the flow of the water generates the energy for the sampling as well and connecting it to the uh, by Bluetooth to your phone. Um, so all you do is unscrew the shower head, screw the amphira on, and screw the um, shower head back on. So the options that we have uh, in households now obviously changing a hot water system or re relocating it is very difficult in a rental situation. But there are many really simple to apply water efficiency. Um, options obviously depending on your local circumstance and situation but um and that can go with you you know uh if you've got a water efficient shower it still keep the one you took off but um if you've got a good the efficient one which gives you the shower experience that that you want and that's obviously an important part of it take it with you <laughs> it's 
Great. Yeah, I have to get one of those. I don't know what we have actually. <laughs> it's just whatever came with the apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. So we'll go on to the questions from the audience. Yeah. Um, so question one is, and this is actually from me. This is my question. Yeah. Um, so do you recommend showering with a bucket and then reusing that water? Does that save a lot of water? Uh, yeah. Well, well, certainly if your aim is water efficiency um, and reducing your wastewater flow and reducing the wastewater that goes out into Port Phillip Bay or, or the environment, um, then, and a lot of people did that during the drought. Or if they had a raised household, they'd capture the grey water, sometimes illegally, you know, depend, just depend on your local, local regulations. But certainly shower water, which is clean, you can use that for all sorts of things, growing stuff in the garden or if you're wanting some... Um, water availability for the garden then then yeah why not um that won't save any energy though just to mm -hmm. put it out there because you've still um you're probably better off just using the hose from the rainwater <laughs> tank uh, for that because if you already warmed it um it doesn't it like um so some options save water um some options save water and wastewater some options save water and wastewater and energy, and some options save water, wastewater, energy, and carbon and cost, etc. Um, mm -hmm. And each one is different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so our second question is: uh, What are the benefits of adopting a net zero uh, water cycle and the strategies? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's a little bit like asking: Should we be trying to achieve net zero at the planetary scale uh, or at the city scale or at the household scale or at the utility scale. So what scale, um, like who's responsible for net zero? It's, it's almost asking that question. And I guess the benefits of a net zero carbon water cycle is it does take a more collective picture um, that yes, our utilities and government have a role and our households also have a role. Um, and let's find the best least cost solutions across that because we can now very clearly see that throwing more money at the utility scale options, whether it's renewable energy harvesting at utilities or new desalination options for more water, um, they're costing more and more and more and making water and energy both less affordable uh, because we're just saying utilities, you're fully responsible, keep fighting more water, keep fighting more energy. Um, but by looking right at the demand side, as well as the supply side and the role of households in that, we'll find more cost-effective solutions that can be afforded by a wider wider range of the community. Mm. So by, I guess, reducing how much energy and water that we're using, um, we both take some of that responsibility, but we also, I guess, reduce the costs on us and we reduce the costs yeah. on yeah. the planet yeah. and on yeah. the government as well. So, so when you ask, yeah, exact, exactly. So when you say, what are the benefits? It's always benefits to who? Uh, is it mm -hmm. benefits to the household or benefits to the landlord or benefits to the utility or benefits to the government or benefits to the country or, yeah. Um, mm. And I think a lot of the challenge of water and energy is that those benefits are fragmented or the costs are fragmented, um, like the data is fragmented and consequently it makes it difficult to uh, firstly understand the pattern, understand the picture, uh, understand how this, you know, different options are impacting that and who is benefit or who is co who, who's, um, who's paying, yep. Hmm. Uh, so our next question is, 
What is the latest technology for wastewater management? Ooh, uh, well, oh, um, so which aspect of wastewater management? Uh, pumping, filtering, treating, drinking? Um, I don't know, which part of it? The audience member doesn't specify. <laughs> uh, look, technology is moving rapidly uh, in multiple dimensions, um, whether it's um, you know, monitoring of flows and understanding it, whether it's the treatment of it, um, I guess um, I'd like to highlight the example of Singapore, which moved to potable wastewater recycling a decade ago, uh, where you can have a wedding at the wastewater treatment plant. Um, you know, it's just so well integrated now into the city where stormwater is also treated through the wastewater network, where it provides collectively 30% of the island's water supply. Um, you know, they've really uh, been confident in their technology and they've done it well and they've educated informed and involved the community at multiple steps along the way. Um, so I think that's phenomenal. Like Queensland, during the Millennium Doubt, we spent $2 billion to build the what we call the Western Corridor Recycle Water Scheme, which in theory, if our dams get below 40%, we'll start putting treated wastewater back into the supply. And it's actually treated to hospital-grade deionized water. And then it gets dirty again when we put it back in the dam uh, after pumping it all the way back. But we still don't do it because the politicians are scared. They say, well, community won't like drinking wastewater, but in multiple countries around the world, they're already doing it in an unplanned, not engineered, not designed, not regulated way. Um, so I think we've got to overcome our phobia uh, of, of wastewater recycling and, and trust the technology and trust that we've got world-leading regulation of it um, and, and that that. But, but I think to do that, we've got to bring the community along with us and we've got to really make information much more available. Uh, we, we're very good at making information available, but specifically on what we're doing with our wastewater. Yeah. A question I've got about that is why, why do you only do that in drought situations? Why are we exactly. only recycling during drought? Is it that it, costs, it, it takes too much energy to recycle it to be back, put back into use? Well, that's part of, the, part of it, but not always. Um, I think it's also about political will um, and that if there's not a problem, you know, if it ain't break, don't fix it sort of thing. Um, I think historically energy costs have been lower than they are now. The energy costs are higher um, and that has a role depending on just how much pumping and treatment is involved. Um, why only in drought? Yeah, I, I think there's also the perception which, you know, people don't like the like, 15 years ago, companies, the manufacturing cardboard said, we don't want to use recycled water in the cardboard manufacturing because these, these cardboard boxes are used for food and maybe the downstream companies wouldn't like that. You know, there's absolutely zero risk. Um, it's about perception, um, management. And I, I yeah, I, don't, I, I honestly can't say why do we do it We're only during drought, but there's a, a saying in, um, in, in the, in the US, in Nevada, one of their driest states where they use wastewater for nuclear power. Um, there's one of the largest, I think the Palo Verde nuclear power plant, which takes treated wastewater, which they've got to manage in a particular way to feed into a nuclear power generation station. But they say the time to start planning for the next drought is when it starts raining. Um, but for some reason um, in, in Australia, it seems that we start planning for the next drought when we're halfway through that drought. Um, so I, I think we need to be cognizant that the next drought is coming. What are we What are we doing for it? 
I feel like that is sort of Australia's, um, that's how they do everything is they start getting into action halfway through whatever is happening. Yeah, and I'm not wanting to be critical. Of, I think Australians are fantastically innovative, um, good at bringing stuff together. But, um, you know, I, I don't know why we have that delay. I, I think I think we still think we're in Europe, you know, green, or in a green, wet island off the coast of west coast of Europe rather than the reality that we're in this highly volatile rainfall climate country, which is getting more volatile. Yeah. Mm. So um, now we'll do the open mic. Um, and so that's where we, uh, you can talk about something that you're passionate about um, yep. Yep. that doesn't have to be related to our topic today. So what did you have in mind? Uh, well, I'm really passionate about rivers and canoeing. Uh, I love um uh, paddling paddling down rivers i've loved that since i was a kid i worked in the uk as an outdoor education instructor taking kids canoeing particularly like taking families out paddling um um on, on rivers um yeah so any, anything to do with water flowing water and rivers that, that's something i really enjoy i think i think it's just beautiful i think you know, the power of the river and the almost the personality of the river um that there's this amazing river in new zealand the, the wanganui which has been declared to have personhood, the first river in the world. And what that means is that um, you can't really take water from the river or pollute the river or block the river without having some kind of voice for the river. And obviously that creates a lot of legal implication, but I, I think it's very respectful of the water and the role that water plays in that environment and system. I think there's a lot of cultural ties um, to the, um, the heritage, the cultural heritage and Maori heritage of that river um so yeah, i'm interested in finding more about that but canoes canoeing and rivers in general i think is a, a great thing to do are you planning on canoeing on the wanganui river yeah yeah going there actually in a better in a better week <laughs> oh exciting well enjoy that um i do have a question so who is the voice of the river do you know if you know it oh, i don't know so yeah, i'll be very interested to find that out hmm. i have heard locals skeptical of it they say oh all it just means more legal battles and you know no outcome so i'm you know i'm really keen to talk to a few people to see what they see are the, the tangible tangible benefits that have come from that and i've heard in australia there's discussion of that uh it would be a good model to adopt in in australia for you know targeted rivers um I guess the implication of it too, obviously, is that the catchment, a, a river is a representation of a catchment. Like every drop of water in that catchment becomes the river. Um, you can often think of the river as like the juice of that land um, that, that's flowing to it and the quality represents everything that's going on in that catchment. Um, but I think um, I think as a perspective, it's it's a little bit like um, my limit, limited understanding of, you know, the... the the, the European culture is that we own the land, whereas the um, traditional owner's perspective is that the land owns us and we're just custodians of it. So, I, and I think there's so much more that we can adopt, you know, that we can learn if we look at it from a different perspective as well. Mm, yeah, that's really, yeah, the, I guess the, the idea that everyone on the land um, is part of it, not just the people, like, you know, the trees and the grass and everything. Yeah. As well. I don't know. That's my idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. catchment is just how the river gets, mm -hmm. becomes. Yeah. Mm. That's really fascinating. I'm going to have to look up more about this river as well because <laughs> I need to know more. And yeah. maybe I'd like to meet it one day. Yeah. 
I, th- I hope you do. <laughs> yes. Um, so if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Uh, well, we have a website at the University of Queensland, uh, just UQ researcher Kenway. That'll probably find me pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll um, we'll make sure um, all the links are in the show notes so that um, everyone can find them. Yep. Thank you for joining me today. It was really Thank- great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you very much, Gabrielle. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.